Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless. If at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Hold on to your lug nuts, kids. Time for an overall. Let's do it. Glad to have you back with me one more time. Now, this show is airing on a Friday. Well, it's dropping on a Friday in the business we call The Drop. And uh, I'm going to be gone for a few days. I do not want to take a machine with me to post this. So instead of the usual Saturday morning get-together, we're going to do this on a Friday, which is uh, it's a good thing, too. And speaking of not wanting to have to bring a machine with me, it's been a week of change. So I have a new computer. I'm actually working on my old trusty, dusty Dell for this particular show because I have everything stored here. But I got a new computer last week. It's, you know, the whole old dog, new tricks thing. Kind of, you know, the keyboard's different. And it's like, you know, it's still a good-sized computer, but not compared to this Cadillac I've been driving for 13 years. And my fingers aren't going where they want. I want them to, and I got to reset stuff. And it's just, so it's going to take, I'm just integrating it little by little. So this morning, uh, very, very early this morning, the coffee is hot. My trusty Dusty Dell will become probably like a resource for me, maybe a production computer, because I'm just so comfortable with it, and I'll just keep the uh, the usage down a little bit and use the other one for daily stuff. But anyway, uh, there's my story with that. Major General James Mukiyama, retired U.S. Army, uh, is an incredible human being. And <laughs> i got to tell you, if I just sat here and read his Wikipedia page, we'd be here for two hours, because that's how much he has accomplished. Now, you're going to hear in this interview that we had um, some of the bits and pieces of his life because, again, we could sit here for hours. I could do a six-part series with the general and never cover all of it. It's that deep. But uh, we had lunch a couple months ago, and I walked into this coffee shop, and he was sitting at the far end of the coffee shop. And I got to tell you, you know, only I spent six years in the Coast Guard, um, but there's a piece of the military bearing that has never left me. And when you walk into a room and there's a general at the other end, <laughs> it's just natural. I mean, I half saluted. I, I didn't know whether to shake his hand or salute or what to do. But we had a great conversation, uh, which led to the conversation that you're going to hear in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but he was born here in Chicago. His father was Japanese immigrant. His mother was the child of immigrant parents from Japan. Uh, he first became involved with the military when he joined the Reserve Officer Training Corps, which is known as ROTC, at the same high school that I went to. Go figure. He attended the University of Illinois at Navy Pier in Chicago, where he earned a bachelor's degree in English. While pursuing his bachelor's degree, he continued his involvement at ROTC, uh, and he was uh, commissioned as a regular Army Second Lieutenant, earned a master's degree in teaching of social studies, and attended the Infantry Officer's Basic Course, and then he earned his jump wings. Uh, what you're going to hear in here, I'm just going to cover the, the surface of this because we're going to get in depth, but he volunteered to fight in Vietnam, but he was sent to Korea instead. After serving to Korea, he did end up in Vietnam in 1969. And then fast forward to 1986, he was the youngest general in the Army at that time. Soon he was uh, promoted to Major General, commanding the 70th Training Division during Desert Storm. When he retired, he went on to have some incredible accomplishments uh, including helping to form the Military Outreach of Greater Chicago, serving as the chairman of the Department of Veterans Affairs Advisory Committee 
on minority veterans and serving as a chair for the committee with the National Veterans Network to select the design for the Congressional Gold Medal Award authorized by Congress uh, Gold Medal for Japanese Americans Act. These are his honors and awards. They need to be read. The Army Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star, Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Meritorious Service Medal, Air Medal, Army Commendation Medal, Army Achievement Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, Vietnam Service Medal, Armed Forces Reserve Medal. His badges include Combat Infantryman Badge, Expert Infantryman Badge, Parachutist Badge, Air Crewman Badge, Expert Marksmanship Badge, and back in 2013, he was the Illinois Veteran of the Month. He has a new book out called Faith, Family, and Flag, and uh, so proud that we have the opportunity to have a conversation we did, and now that you get a chance to hear that. So without further delay, here you go. So it is a rare occasion that I actually have a real human being in front of me in my studios. I've been doing radio for 30 years. Uh, There was a time that was a regular occurrence. When you do podcasting, most people are remote. And uh, but today I have Major General James Mukuyama in my studio, and I am so nervous, sir. <laughs> Again, so welcome. Well, thank you very much, John. And no need to be nervous. We're just fellow bulldogs. That's right. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, shout out uh, to Mike Devine who put us together. Michael Devine, a yes. great friend of yours, great friend of mine. Did he went to Lane Tech? Unfortunately, didn't he? Well, we'll forgive him. Okay, we can let that slide. But thanks to Mike for doing this. And you and I had lunch about a month ago. It was a very, very cold day, as I recall. Yes. Um, and I walked in, and I was realizing how much. Now, I only spent six years in the military. You were in for a very long time. But I almost half saluted you. That's Do you, right. What I, I, it's like still in me, you know? Right. Absolutely. It, that, it doesn't go away. And uh, regardless of what service you were in, if you served, we're we're all brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think I heard it once the best. Uh, we're all in the same church, just in different pews. We all serve in our own way. Right. So you mentioned the bulldog thing. Before I get to the book and your life, which is incredible, I'm all about full disclosure and a full disclaimer that both of us are graduates of Schur's High School, the best high school in Chicago. Absolutely. Carl Schur's High School. You came walking in with your purple and gold on today, which is our colors. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> but you came, You were there a little bit before I was. Yes. I graduated in 1961. Yeah. You want to feel really old? I was four. <laughs> <laughs> but you look great. So we'll get to some of the Schur stuff in ROTC in a few minutes. But I got to tell you, we were, we were doing a sound check, and uh, you were talking about book signings and things like that. And the name of the book that you had just came out last year in 2023 is Faith, Family, and Flag. Great subtitle, great title, but also great subtitle, Memoirs of an Unlikely American Samurai Crusader. A fascinating and wonderful title. And you just had done a couple of uh, book signings recently. Yes, uh, I, I was just this last weekend at the Asian American Chicago Coalition uh, Lunar New Year mm-hmm. event. They, they do this every year, and they, they uh, transfer the sponsorship of that year mm-hmm. among the different ethnicities. Ah. And the Japanese-American community was responsible this year. So 
my American Legion post, which uh, in my book I talk about, uh, was initially comprised of Japanese American World War II veterans. Uh, they've been a strong participant in community activities in Chicago. In mm -hmm. fact, they were known nationwide uh, throughout the American Legion. Mm -hmm. And so our chapter uh, was one of the sponsors uh. for it. And they were kind enough to have a, let me, well, at our American Legion table that we set up, mm -hmm. they let me uh, set up some of my books so that if people had any interest. Apparently uh, they did, I hear. Yes, and they, they could make a donation. Uh, it wasn't a book sale, really, because uh, any proceeds from the book are, uh, my wife and I are not keeping. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to use a publisher, so... Sure. Uh, anything that I get as the publisher uh, will be split between Military Outreach USA, which is a faith-based nonprofit I founded, and also our church mm -hmm. in uh, Glenview, Illinois, mm -hmm. Hope Community Church. So before I get to all this stuff, because there's a lot of stuff to get to here, I almost hate asking this question first. Because, you know, when you say to somebody, why did you write this book? It's an endless answer. But I'm wondering where the pivot point came from you, General, where you where you knew, it was, I'm sure you thought about it over the years here and there, and all of a sudden, was there a pivot point or some sort of intersection with like, now it's time to tell my story? Yeah, ironically, uh, your assumption is not correct. I, <laughs> I basically, uh, and ironically, again, I majored in English literature. So the book is like 98% all mine, organization writing, uh, the publisher yeah. had a uh, uh, an editor that just kind of yeah, clean cleaned it up, it up yeah, a little bit, yeah. but it's all it's all mine. So that's and, a rare thing these days, quite frankly. But I it was never on my bucket list, John. Hmm. I never had thought about doing it uh, because I I didn't want just to do a book about me. Uh, but then uh, two and a half years ago, a dear friend of mine, uh, his name is Alan Lynch. Alan Lynch is a Medal of Honor recipient who was with the 1st Cav in Vietnam. Uh, later on in life, he was one of my first sergeants in the Army Reserve. So I go back with Al a long time. And he has a foundation, a charitable foundation, uh, the Alan Lynch Foundation, for to help veterans mm -hmm. and their families. And so uh, every year he has a golf outing. And he asked me to give the benediction for the dinner. And so I, uh, how can I turn him down? And, and I go there, and we're talking outside in the hallway before the dinner. And I mentioned some things about the, the Japanese-American World War II veterans. And, and he says, you know, General, you should write a book. And there was another guy, gentleman there, uh, uh, his name is Andrew Tangan, who's the chairman, or no, he's the superintendent of the Veterans Assistance Commission mm. at Lake County, Illinois. By the way, every county in our country is supposed to have a Veterans Assistance Commission to help veterans. Mm -hmm. And Lake County is blessed with one of the best in the country. Wow. And, and so he chimes in. He said, yeah, General, you should write a book. And I... And now I'm being piled on, and, and I said, nah, guys, you know, I just poo-pooed it. And then, yeah. But I thought about it overnight, and I sent an email the next morning to both of the guys. I said, you guys, 
are you serious? You think this has any merit? And they said, yeah, you got to do this. So there I, it is. I said, yeah, I'll wow. do it. And How long was the process? Or, as someone who's I've written my three of my own books, I write for other people, the processes could be arduous. How was the process for you of, of digging this stuff up and bringing it out for yourself? It, it wasn't, it might surprise you to hear this. I had the first manuscript completed in three months. That's unheard of. And, and hmm. you know, I, this stuff was probably all in the back of my sure. mind anyway. But you see, the first thing, I, I'm a pretty logical guy the way I approach things. And the first thing I said to myself is, uh, what's the purpose of this book? See, I, the reason I didn't even think of writing a book is I'm not into writing things about myself. And so uh, I said, all right, Jim, what's the purpose? And the purpose is very simple, to demonstrate the influence and blessings of God in my life. That's it. And uh, by showing things that have happened in my life that are many, some are unexplainable or, you know, odds are like slim and next to none. And yet God blessed me with those. And then I talk, you know, and then I said, all right, who's my audience? And I, I broke it into four categories. Number one is people of faith or people seeking faith. Uh, number two was the military community because I was in it for 32 years. I had two combat tours. Uh, number three uh, were minorities ah. because I are one. And then, I've heard that. <laughs> and number four was the youth of our nation whom I feel are not receiving the proper information, education, history of the uniqueness and exceptionalism of the United States of America. Uh, in my book, I say when I was born in the United States, I hit the lotto. I was just going to say, because that's the very first note I made in the perfect place to leap off of, you called it almost Norman Rockwellian for you and your family. Yes, uh, and for for the younger crowd here who might not know who Norman Rockwell was, he was a, a very famous artist who uh, wrote covers for the Saturday Evening Post mm -hmm. for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, but his paintings were just so realistic, yeah. and he captured the 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 meaning of the the feelings of the people of our culture. Now, when I say our culture, I'm talking about the American culture. Uh, my, you know, I was, my father immigrated from Japan. Mm -hmm. My wife immigrated from Korea. I was born here. Right. But my dad, when my brother and I were growing up, and, this, and I was born during World War II, my brother was actually a young kid in World War II because he's older, and he told us, as we were growing up, uh, he inculcated the the Japanese cultural values, shall mm -hmm. we say. And one was to never shame our ethnicity, the Japanese. Uh, number two, never shame the family name. 
<laughs> and if we violated either of those, uh, <laughs> no need for us to come home because we wouldn't have a home to right. come back to. Uh, but he said the most important thing was that we were born in this nation. We were citizens of the United States. This is our country. Take the best out of the Japanese culture. And that's the strength of our nation, which is our diversity. That we, we are, let's face it, our country has been started by immigrants. Uh, you know, yeah. the pilgrims yeah. were, were immigrants. Uh, the Native Americans were here. I get that. Yeah. But the actual founding, the the uh, the Western values mm-hmm. that were brought in, and so I told my kids, uh, since my wife is Korean, mm-hmm. you know, I said take the best of Japanese culture, Korean culture, add that to the strong foundation of our American fundamental documents and values. And that's what makes our country so exceptional. Mm. You know, when you were born in 1944, the war, World War II was not yet over. Right. And it's astonishing in a good way to me that I can go, you can go, we can go to Japan today on vacation. And yet, less than a, a lifetime ago, we were embroiled in a world war. And when, I hear, when you and I first talked at lunch and you brought up the conversation about your dad and that sense of pride... Sometimes I feel like you take the best of the Korean culture and the best of the Japanese culture, and I think sometimes we forgot the best of the American culture, and we need the reminders of things like you're writing about. And I don't know if you noticed when you came in, but I have a Norman Rockwell that's been sitting there for yeah. 10 years coming home because it captures the, I think, the underlying essence of what this country is. So when I was reading your book, I started to find out, you know, while it's a pretty small world after all, right? So we're if we could just bring out the best of who we are and incorporate our cultures, so much the better. Do you think without, I mean, you can take a deep dive as you want, General, uh, that we've lost a lot of that sense of Americanism, for for lack of a better term? Uh, Yes, but it's recoverable. And so when I say yes, the next question I ask myself is why? Why has it, why have we lost that? And my answer is very clear. The civics is no longer taught like it was when we went. When, well, when we were at Shures, we had the past civics. Civics class, that's you right. Know, that Which was, means you're supposed to be civil. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, civics. we had to learn all the basic fundamentals of yeah. our government, the yeah. three branches, on yeah. and on. Uh, and not only that, but we were always... You know, we were we knew the foibles of our nation. We knew the bad things that mm-hmm. that we had done. The last time I looked, we were all sinners, mm. and nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. But the beauty and the pride I have as an American is that we recognize that throughout our history. And call it out. Not yeah. only called out, we made changes. Yeah. Now, the most obvious one was the Civil War. Yeah. The Civil War was about slavery. Uh, you know, pe- other people will say, you know, now it's about states' rights and all. The basic core that created the Civil War is slavery. And President Lincoln had a, had a platform, <laughs> and, he, it, and he followed through, and it cost yeah. him his life. Yeah. 
and he was such a generous man to to want to heal the divisions in our nation. But the fact of the matter is, five to six hundred thousand Americans died to end slavery. That's a total on both sides. Right. And this is the only nation that I know of that paid that price to end slavery. Now, there, you know, England was, you know, ahead of us in abolition movements and things. But once we got involved, we yeah. we recognized that in our nation. That's That's another thing that bothers me is that all this talk about systemic racism. As we were growing up, the only systemic racism I knew was to be as good an American as I could be. So forgotten country was the motto of the Boy Scouts. I was mm-hmm. in the Boy Scouts, uh, you know, for for the veterans groups like the American Legion. You know, their preamble talks about forgotten country and, and note in that order and uh, that's how I. That's how we grew up. Right. When World War II started, any young-blooded, able-bodied American male immediately went to the to sign up. Yeah. They didn't have to be drafted. They all went, and if they, frankly, if they couldn't get in, they couldn't pass the test or whatever. That was kind of a a little shameful. But <laughs> then they would work for the industry sure, or something. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I noticed in the book that you talk about there was, I don't know if it was a total decision that had to be made, but there was mention of East versus West. Which way am I going to go here with my life and, and how you live your life? And, of course, that comes back to your, your roots and things like that. Interesting, what do you think, interesting to me, as we're having this conversation, you talk about the best of the Japanese culture. What does that mean? What is a, an example of that that you think? Oh, sure. Uh, uh, there are uh, key values and emphases. Uh, One is uh, honor. The other is respect. It's not only respect for elders, which is a big deal, but respect for others. Uh, There's also uh, something called on, which means debt. When somebody does something for you, you remember that. Mm -hmm. And when you have an opportunity to pay back, you do that without having without being needed to be asked you do it and uh family is a extremely important issue too uh another thing though that getting back to your original question about why we've lost certain Mm -hmm. values or seen the decrease is a, a purposeful uh attempt to eliminate God in in everything. Now, the Constitution says freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. So we don't want our government to force a religion on us. On the other hand, we want to be able to worship as we see fit or not to worship at all if we don't want to. And that, I would argue, that the Judeo-Christian foundation of the United States uh, has been a reason that we receive the blessings we have. Because 
what other nation, you, you look at it, now, of course, in the Bible it says, you know, those who are, who are blessed need to share. And, but having said that, when there's a disaster anywhere in the world, you know, what nation always appears mm -hmm. with help? Right. The United States. You know, what nation has lost over a million soldiers uh, in the various world wars and, and frankly, the Civil War uh, to defend people's rights? And, and overseas, you know, if it wasn't for us, we'd all be speaking yeah, Japanese exactly. or German. Right. No offense to either one of our heritages, by the way. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of this started, we, we talked a little bit about Shures before, but really your military career, as I recall, started at Shures in the ROTC program. Yes. Uh, the, the, the junior ROTC program, which is the high school ROTC program, is one of the most misunderstood programs we have. Uh People who don't know, really know its mission think that it's a feeder for the armed forces. Some people do join the military after our junior ROTC, but mm -hmm. the you know it's it's a minority. Right. The real mission of the junior ROTC is to give young high school students the experience of leadership, of teamwork, of discipline, and uh, really the, the ROTC gives examples through their cadre, mm -hmm. the ROTC officers and non-commissioned officers that are the instructors, they're role models yeah. for a lot of these young men and women, by the way, these Junior ROTC is probably half women. Yes. Uh, and uh, it, it is a wonderful program for Yeah, you know, life. high school is tough enough as it is. And I remember at Shures, a few of my friends were in the ROTC, and it took a lot of guts, General, to walk around with that uniform in the halls of Shures. I'm sure you heard a few things, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and part of me thinks, well, that's what happens where you when you wear a uniform anyway. You know, you hear things that you – some are good, some aren't so good – and, um, you know, uh, I, I was back at Shures not that long ago, and the ROTC program is still there. It's not as robust as it once was. Mm -hmm. uh, but I run into the, the sergeant who's running it and, you know, thank him for what he's doing. And, and I am admired his efforts over the years because everything you just said is, to me, are the foundational pieces, the discipline, especially when it comes to how you live your life. And leadership is critical. And all the skills that you learn in ROTC – but it was funny how things come back around. But the, those lessons, like me almost saluting you at a coffee shop 40 years later, the listen, discipline and leadership and all the other elements that I learned in the service have been the only reason that I can do what I do today. And I think that a lot of people don't have that in their lives. And, and the ROTC, well, th and this is really true of, of the military service as a whole, uh, has the... The standards of uh, duty and honor, and yeah. and you develop trust because number one, you've all gone through the same stuff. Good point. Same stuff <laughs> in 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 basic training. Yes, <laughs> and and uh, so you you have a shared experience, 
And then you have a trust of your leaders because you know they've gone through the same thing. Exactly. And that's one thing that leaders, I'm, I've got a, I talk, you know, I've I'm been asked to give speeches on leadership and I'm a pretty simple-minded guy, so I kind of boil things down to make it easy. And and my concept of leadership is three things: example, caring, and balance. Uh, by example, I mean personal example. You got to walk the talk. I mean, subordinates can smell a fake leader a mile away, so you've got to lead by example. Uh, Number two is caring. You have to care for your subordinates. You don't just, you, you just don't have their trust and respect because you're wearing certain ranks. You earn their trust and respect by the way you conduct yourself. But one of the ways is you care for your people. The most important thing, and we're all taught this in the military, number one is the mission. Mm-hmm. And but, the mission, real quick, sir, is yeah. the mission's bigger than you. I think that's one of the main things that I've told people who ask me about my service. I'm like, it was not the first time, but definitely the most important time, that it's not about me. That there's something bigger than you that you should put your back into. And when you do that, amazing things happen. That's right. You, you learn that life is not all about me. It's, Contrary to much of the world today with selfies and stuff. Yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, so, and how do you care for your people? You care for your people by being with them and put, show some personal interest. Talk to them, you know, and, and uh, but once you do that and once you get their trust, that is what creates esprit de corps in units, morale. You know, people will, I, I, I talk about, uh, Colonel Hackworth in my book, who is a, a trim, he was one of the most uh, respected and honored infantry soldiers in the history of the United States Army, and I had the honor of commanding a company mm. in one of his battalions. He's a legend. He's a legend. Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, he got, he received eight Purple Hearts, <laughs> and the, the last one was with our battalion when he landed a command and control helicopter in the middle of a firefight, believe it or not, to extricate some wounded soldiers. Mm -hmm. And a command and control helicopter is very small. Yeah. <laughs> it's only for the commander and maybe yep. one other person and the pilot. And so he, he gets these two wounded soldiers, put them on the helicopter, no room for him. So he stands on the skids, they take off, and he gets hit in the leg. After he did that, he could have come to us, his soldiers, and said, I want you to walk through that wall of fire over there. Yeah. And our response would have been, where? Yeah. I was telling you at lunch, too, and I was able to find that I, years ago, I had a couple of conversations on my radio show in Michigan with Colonel Hackworth. And uh, as soon as you said his name at lunch, I'm like, oh, Oh, I remember this. And he was a real life John Wayne, basically. Oh, he was. He he looked the he looked the role, and he acted the role right. too. In fact, and he was. You know, I got pretty close to him. Mm -hmm. uh, he used to call me Mook because he <laughs> couldn't pronounce Mukoyama, 
And, Is that how that started? And I used to call him Sir. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's how it started. Yeah. It just it just yeah. kind of stuck. Well, speaking of how things started, you uh, obviously got out of Shurs and later attended University of Illinois at Navy Pier where you got your bachelor's degree in English, as you mentioned before, and you're pursuing your bachelor's degree. You continued involvement at ROTC and then commissioned as a regular Army second lieutenant, earned master's degree in teaching of social studies. And then you attended infantry uh, officer's basic course, earned your jump wings. Then you volunteered to go to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen right away. What took place? Yeah, I, uh, I volunteered for Vietnam, and instead they sent me to the DMZ in Korea. Now, by the way, that was not a walk in the park. Uh, For 13 months that I was there, I was with the 2nd Infantry Division. Uh, We were stationed on the DMZ. And our mission was, frankly, to be kind of a tripwire. If the North Koreans came across, Mm -hmm. they'd have to come through us. Mm -hmm. How many many, uh, troops were there at that time? Yeah, we had two divisions. Two divisions. Yeah. So we probably had 30,000, mm-hmm. and uh, that's just the two divisions. Mm-hmm. We had other headquarters there also. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I I served there, and uh, that was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, I was going to say, there's this picture of you from 1966 with the flat-top army regs, yeah. haircut, tough-looking dude back then, but that time there at the DMZ must have been invaluable to you. Oh, yeah. And as I said, it was the DMZ actually, for the infantry units stationed on the DMZ, not other units that were in the back, but we were actually on the DMZ. Yeah. We we actually had compounds, individual company compounds, and we had uh, barbed wire and we had uh, uh, guard mounts and and so and we went out doing combat patrolling every day hmm. so uh and, and were you eye to eye with the north koreans at all sometimes yeah uh, very very rarely because seeing the dmz is like a four thousand meter band going across the mm-hmm. korean peninsula and half of it is ours half of it is theirs yeah and that area, uh, no one was supposed to be in the area. So it was a free fire zone. Mm-hmm. So if you saw somebody, you could shoot them. Okay? Now, we were supposed to say in Korean to... Halt who goes there, halt who goes there, halt You know, and... Yeah. But anyway, uh, 13 months, we had uh, 12 guys killed and about 40 wounded. Really? Yeah. And that's just our small yeah. brigade area that we yeah. were in. yeah. And uh, and that's because the North Korean special forces were trying to infiltrate down into Seoul. Seoul wasn't that far away from the DMZ. And so they tried to get into country to disrupt communication lines. Also, they, they had a group that came down to the Blue House, which is the president's residence, mm. the equivalent of our White House, mm-hmm. uh, to assassinate the president. Mm. So, and this is in 1966. I mean, right. things are really heating up in Vietnam. That's right. It's yeah. just after everything went down in Cuba just a few years before. The president assassinated just 36 months before. Mm. Pretty volatile time. Yeah. Wow. What do you remember most about that, that, that experience? In Korea? Yeah. Uh, well, 
uh, I, I, at when I went to University of Illinois, uh, I'm I'm a pretty passionate guy when I get into something, and I decided that I was going to become an infantry officer in the United States Army. So, really, ROTC was my path. I, I have a stigmatism in my eyes, and I couldn't pass the eye test for the academy. So. My next best selection was ROTC. So, but I, you know, there's no ROTC major no. at the university, no. right? So I had to select a major, and I decided what what major would better best prepare me to be an officer, a leader of men, right? So that was, so I, I boiled it down to, English literature and psychology. Hmm. Okay. Which are pretty closely connected if you work it right. Yeah. So yeah. so I'm so I'm going through my first psychology course and we're learning about Pavlov and his dogs <laughs> and all this stuff. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, you know, what you know, what does this have to do with, you know, relationships, you know, right. with people and all that. So I rejected psychology. But English literature, whether it, the whole continuum, whether you read Every Man or Shakespeare or Hemingway, there are universal traits of human nature that come out at you. Yes. And if you can learn those and understand those, you then know what motivates people and you can be a better leader. Hmm. And the ancillary benefit was mm -hmm. just by reading the best writers of all time, I felt I could learn how to express myself better interesting and it was it, it was all it all worked pretty well how did when did the call come to go to vietnam how did that take place oh i i knew i was going i volunteered twice so eventually they grabbed you okay so i was yeah. in korea for 18 months yeah. came back to the states i was at fort lewis washington uh at the army training center mm -hmm. infantry army training center so we were training uh, infantry soldiers and 99% of our graduates were shipping to Vietnam. So this was serious business, okay? And Colonel Hackworth had just come off a tour in Vietnam and he was at Fort Lewis and that's where we met. Uh -huh. And uh, long story short, what happened was he went back to Vietnam for another tour Mm -hmm. I'm still at Fort Lewis, right? But he knew me, and I talk in the book about some stuff that we did. And, and so anyway, I get a letter from Hackworth, and he says, Book, we got a war going on. He said, what are you doing at Fort Lewis? He said, if you want a company, it's yours. It's like I hit what? the lotto. Yeah, again. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, so I, so I immediately called the infantry branch and, and uh, wow. volunteered you know, for Vietnam. And the guy said, what's your phone number in case we get cut off? Because <laughs> there weren't a lot of people doing what I, yeah. was, I just did. Wow. And, and so then I went over and, and Hackworth had all the skids greased. Yeah, Everybody yeah. said, when I got to Vietnam at the replacement depot, uh, that's where you report, yeah. infantry captains were a dime a dozen. And they needed them, you know, everywhere sure. in Vietnam. So they said, whatever orders you get, they said, they're going out the window and they'll just assign you wherever you 
mm-hmm. wherever they need you. Mm-hmm. Well, my orders said the 9th Infantry Division, which is where Hackworth was at, right? Mm-hmm. Hackworth had greased all the You walked right through the middle, yeah. I went, I didn't pass, go, I collected, <laughs> collected, I just went right, yeah. right to our division. And again, we're talking with uh, General James Mukiyama. We're talking about his great book. It's called Faith, Family, and Flag Memoirs of an Unlikely American Samurai Crusader, which I've learned more and more after reading your book and meeting you a couple times. You are an unlikely American Samurai Crusader. We'll get to that in a couple minutes. The book is available at Amazon uh, for sure. Um, When did you know you were really in Vietnam? It's one thing to think about it. You want to go. You've volunteered. You rejected twice. Hackworth sets you up. You get there. When did you were like, I'm actually here. When when the plane touched the ground, <laughs> it was a I, different deal. You knew that or, you were out well, of I mean, you weren't yeah, in Kansas anymore. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and of course the the uh, uh, just the physical yeah. arrangement. It's so hot and humid. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I'll tell you though, uh, I was in Asia again, uh, which to me. The first time I was in Asia was Korea, you know, earlier in my first tour. Mm-hmm. But I'll never forget when I got off the plane in Seoul. That's Kimpo Air Force Base, and uh, I had I had some time to kind of walk around in the city. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time in my life I did not feel like a minority. Wow! Because everybody had black hair. Brown eyes. They were short like me, <laughs> and, and so that was that was quite something. Uh, Interesting. So when I went back, and uh, you know, and then my second tour in Asia, yeah. you know, in in Vietnam, uh, you know, I I was back in a culture that I I somewhat knew and understood. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the language, but I uh, I knew the history. If you know the history, then you can understand the people better. Mm. Um, before we move into some of the other specific things in Vietnam, I was always thinking, as I'm reading the book and some of the conversations we've had, how this all affected your parents, especially your dad. When you were in, you gone to Korea, now you're in Vietnam. How did that affect them, if, if at all? Well, uh, it had two effects, one on my father and one on my mother, but I should... I should go back and explain uh, a little bit about the samurai culture in Japan. Uh, Japan in Japan, when uh, for centuries the samurai was in total control, uh, and uh, unlike the Chinese culture, where the the top of the social ladder, so to speak, was the scholar. Okay, in Japan it was the warrior, the samurai, and so uh, you, you, well, our generation saw the movie, the TV series, the Shogun. Shogun, yeah, yeah, but it, I don't know how many younger people even know what that was about. We're actually bringing it back; it's back again. Yeah, yeah so that version. was that was all about the Japanese culture was really. Uh, based on the samurai traditions, mm-hmm. and and by the way, it's a Second Amendment warning. The samurai were the only people in society who could carry weapons. Is that right? The common man could not have a weapon. Wow, 
Wow. Needless to say, they controlled everything, the whole country. Yeah. There was a, a phrase in Japanese which uh, translated to English is to cut down and walk away. The samurai could be judge, jury, and executioner on the spot. Hmm. So if they saw somebody doing something wrong, they could literally pull out their sword, cut them in half, and turn around and just walk away. Hmm. And that was... uh, But along with that came what's called Bushido. Uh, In Japanese, uh, Bushi is warrior, and Do is is like the way. And so Bushido is a code, Hmm. like the chivalric code for the knights. Right, right. And it was all about honor the way you comport yourself, things that you had to do to to maintain the respect of the samurai tradition. And so that was uh, extremely mm-hmm. important. So now getting back to your question, uh, my father was so proud when I got into junior ROTC because I was wearing the uniform. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, of, I was a, I was a, war, you know, part of the system. Yeah. And then when, when I got commissioned, as an officer, see now keep in mind, Japan was occupied by the United States after World War II. You know, and and uh, but anyway, for me to become an officer was like becoming a samurai. Ah. Okay. Yeah. And then, when I became a general in the army it was like i became a lord you know the higher the higher level yeah yeah and then when i my last assignment in the army was one of the highest uh for reservists yeah uh it, it was like i was kind of uh not a shogun but getting up there close to, shogun, to that level yeah, yeah. Wow. so so to answer your question my my dad was very proud uh, and fortunate, I was very blessed that he saw me mm. become a general. Mm. And uh, now my mother, on her side, uh, and I, I say this towards the end of the book because I just found out about a year ago that my family, on my mother's side, was actually samurai. And I had heard rumors, but I, I didn't really know. And Almost all the family, you know, my grandparents and yeah. older uncles, you know, they're gone. So sure, sure. I don't have anyone to ask, right, basically. Right. My wife found a audio tape interview of my mother the last, day, last year of her life when she was 84. She was interviewed by a University of San Francisco a researcher who mm-hmm. was interviewing Japanese-American second-generation uh, Nisei, and I talk about what that is in the book, and she basically covered my mom's whole life. Really? Yeah, it was wow. just so cool. Wow. And And uh, was born in Madison, Wisconsin. Her parents, that family was moved from, I think it was Wyoming to Nebraska to Wisconsin to Oklahoma and then California. They wow. kind of did this circuitous route, mm-hmm. but this is over a decade, okay? Mm-hmm. And and the researcher, uh, she was uh, she was trying to 
uh, do a paper on race relations. And, and she kept on asking my mom, tell me, tell me about racism that you were, you know, that yeah. you encountered. Yeah. You know, and my mom, they traveled all over the country. She lived through the Depression. She lived through World War Two. you know, so you would think mm-hmm. there's some opportunities there, you know. Yeah. And my mom said, no, I didn't experience, no, I didn't experience <laughs> Next <any."> question. <laughs> yeah, and and the researchers throughout the interview kept on trying to trying get to her curve to. Trying to curveball through, yeah. yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and my mom just said, no, you know, this is America, you know, yeah. we you know, we had opportunity, and mm-hmm. and so then. But getting back to your question about how did she, you know when I was in Vietnam and how did, yeah. how did she feel? The interviewer asked my mom towards at the end of the interview. This is a two-hour interview, by the way. At the end of the interview, she said, "What was the worst time in your life?" Okay, she's eighty-four years old, and and without hesitation, when Jim was in Vietnam. Yeah. And she said, why was that? And she said, you know, he was an infantry captain. And I was not surprised, but my mom actually went to quite some detail. She said, he was an infantry captain. He commanded an infantry in combat. <laughs> and so I was wor- that was the worst time in my life. And then she said, well, what was the best time in your life? And she said, when Jim came home. Oh, boy. So... They mm. had a map of Vietnam in our kitchen, yeah. like you had mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they followed my, uh, there was a wow. really, uh, a, a, gentleman, a guy who has become like a brother to me, and part of our family, his name is Bob Adams, who I talk about in the book, who, who uh, befriended my parents when I was gone. Mm. And he was an army veteran, and so he could explain to them everything, and he had... He got a map and he plotted my movements as you know when, yeah. when I was in the army and he became like a another son and he, literally a brother to me so you know um I mentioned to you at lunch and I mentioned to you when you came in we were talking and this is where this map thing came up so my cousin uh the Sarge Rich Hoffman two tours in Vietnam highly decorated marine um same thing I had a map on the wall in my bedroom and when I would get a letter from him, it would be two months or three months behind, but I, at least I could track somewhat. And somewhere I still have that map with the holes in it, you know what yeah. I think? And until you said that, I think, imagine how many families did that, Yeah. you know, just untold. There was an event, a lot of events in Vietnam that took place, but there was one that you talk about, recount in the book, and you talked about interviews. When you came upon, you know, you're, you're in the battle, and, and I believe there were two or three dead Vietnamese soldiers at your feet. And it was a... I don't know if it was an epiphany for you, but it was certainly something that stopped me in my tracks when I was re- reading that. Could you please share that? Sure. This this has to do with uh, getting to give you the background on that. This this goes. This is connected to the faith based nonprofit called Military Outreach USA that uh, I, I had the honor of with some other Christian men to. Uh, reach out to veterans and their families who were dealing with uh, problems that you know they could be physical they could be financial uh, but there is a a very serious problem of the so-called invisible wounds of war Um, people know about PTSD right they know about uh, traumatic brain injury 
but what I'm talking about is something called moral injury. Uh, moral injury is not a physical wound. You can't see it. Uh, but it is something that uh, stays with you forever. We had just had a battle with the Viet Cong, and we had overrun their position. We had killed numerous enemy, and, and there were literally three dead bodies at my feet. Now, I was the company commander. Uh, at that time, probably I had 150 soldiers, uh, uh, three platoons, and uh, basically the time a unit is most vulnerable is right after a victory because it's just human nature to let your guard down kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I was the pro. I knew that. I was the guy in charge. So I'm on my radio talking to my platoon leaders, and I'm basically barking out orders. I'm telling them to, to reorganize their units, take care of your wounded, redistribute ammunition, uh, look for enemy avenues of approach. Suddenly I stopped. And I looked at the three bodies at my feet. Only moments earlier, these were alive human beings. They were children of God. They were fighting for things as important to them as I was fighting for. And I'm in their backyard. And yet I'm treating them like they were just bumps on a log. And then I remembered Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he told us to pray for our enemies. And... In the midst of all this stuff going on, the so-called fog of battle, uh, I said a prayer for the three Viet Cong. Uh, and uh, now I didn't get on my hands and knees, wasn't, didn't have a big ceremony. Uh, this all took like 30 seconds uh, in my mind, I'm sure. Uh, but it's something that has stuck with me. And it has helped me deal with moral injury. Now, what is moral injury? And it's so intuitive that you'll get it in 30 seconds. From the time you're born until you're 18 years old, you develop a personal moral code, a sense of right or wrong. That could come from your family, your religion, your community, whatever. You develop a personal moral code. Then you join the military and you learn a warrior code. The warrior code is superimposed on your personal moral code, and then you might have to do things that violate your personal moral code, such as killing. You don't have to be the person that pulls the trigger. You could be a witness, or you could feel you should have prevented it, or you could follow another unit and see innocent civilians were killed, or you handle body parts. At that time, you sustain a moral injury. But you're so busy in military operations, you don't have time to stop and reflect on this stuff. So, naturally, what you do is you bury it. And it becomes unresolved guilt and shame. And then, let's say later, you come back to the States and you leave the military. And you come back to Milwaukee or Chicago or San Diego or wherever to a community that doesn't understand what you've been through. And then it bubbles up to the surface. And if you don't have a strong coping mechanism for that, 
or a strong support group, bad stuff happens. Anger, depression, suicide. And it's the position of Military Outreach USA that the main approach to dealing with moral injury is not a medical doctor with prescription drugs. It's the forgiveness and grace of a moral authority, a loving God, the counseling of clergy, and the support of a community offering hope and help. And that's what we try to do. Um, when I went into boot camp, it was nine or 12 weeks, I don't recall. And everything gets drilled into you. And when I got out, it was, here's your DD-214, we'll see you later. So take the men and women of the Vietnam era or the World War II era, the Korea era, any, even the more recent wars and conflicts we've been in. So I hope there's more for these uh, veterans as they're coming out the door as there was going in at this point. Yeah, we, we have learned, uh, and especially for the uh, Vietnam generation, uh, we were treated so poorly when we came back from Vietnam. Uh, young people today would not believe how we were treated. We were spit on, people threw urine and excrement in bags at us. Uh, we were called baby killers. Uh, this is all the propaganda that had been put out, uh, frankly, by the press and, and uh, some of the movies. But uh, we were. it was so bad that we literally we're told not to wear our uniforms in public. And now it's totally different. And I I actually give credit to my generation for that because we swore to ourselves in future wars that this would not happen to uh, future soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen. And and, uh, so that's why we've had these yellow ribbon Mm -hmm. events. And now... You know, when you have military walking through airports in uniforms, people say, thank you for your service. You know, they offer to buy them a coffee or whatever. And and, uh, so that's, but more importantly, the military has programs that uh, help the service members coming back and transitioning back to civilian society. Hmm. Uh, they, They help them with that. Yeah. Well, that part of the conversation, you know, uh, you know, I'm watching our time here and I'm thinking I could do a six part series <laughs> with you, General. Uh, but the one thing that I found in the background a bit was this angel on your shoulder all these years. And you and I had had lunch, as I mentioned, and we were talking back and forth about relationships and things. And what do they always say was one, one of two things. Behind every good man is a surprise mother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> but in your case, uh, KJ has been this brudder, this guiding light, this, this steady presence that I think allows you in some degree to go out and do all these things that you do. Oh, absolutely. My, my wife uh, is from Korea. Her, her uh, given name is Kyungja, uh, but everybody calls her KJ. Cause, and she... She is a beautiful out and outside and inside, and she has been uh, one of the, in, in the book. I talk about God things throughout the book, where and one of them is God uh, 
bringing KJ into my life. Uh, it's That alone is a miracle because she's Korean, I'm of Japanese descent. Anybody who knows East Asian history, uh, the odds of a Japanese guy marrying a Korean woman on a scale of 1 to 100 is minus 50. <laughs> and yet we... I met her in San Francisco. Uh, she doesn't like me to tell the story long, so I'll make it the short, very, very short version. I met her in San Francisco after I came back from Vietnam. I, the moment I saw her, I knew this was it. And uh, we were, my, believe it or not, my mother and myself and my cousin and his mother were visiting California in KJ was working at a uh, in the Silicon Valley uh, for a company where my cousin's sister was working, and so she, her intent, the sister's intent was to introduce KJ to her brother, but I met KJ first, uh-huh. and I said, "That's it," <laughs> and uh, and we, you know, we were there for a week. I took her out five nights. Uh, that was in August. In December, I invited her out to our, to Chicago. Now, catch this. I was such a great catch. Uh, <laughs> I was single. I was unemployed. <laughs> I was living with my parents. <laughs> Not in the basement, I might well, add. that's but good. I was living with my parents, and, and I was in Chicago, and she's in the San Francisco area, right? Mm. Sponsored and living with a very rich family. Wow. And somehow I was able to convince her to to marry me and come to Chicago. So, but here's the thing: she let my parents, not her parents, live with us for 22 years, same house, until they died. Wow! And so, you know, I've I've been so blessed that you know she let my parents live with us. Our mm-hmm. our kids had the same experience I had as a kid with my grandparents living with us, and uh, that's priceless, you know, to pass on traditions, values, especially the values. We have a lot in common, General, and uh, one of the other things is that uh, I donated a kidney to my daughter when she was 13 years old, and I was reading through your book, and I'm listening to some of the interviews you did, I'm like, wait, wait, what? And so tell the listeners about your kidney experience. Yes, I'm I'm an Agent Orange survivor. For those of you not aware of Agent Orange, it was a defoliant, a chemical that was spread in Vietnam uh, to kill plants, uh, especially along roads where the enemy used to hide and ambush us. So, and at that time, we didn't know that this chemical had very bad future effects. Uh, uh, heart attacks, uh, uh, different things. There's like 14 different, uh, some cancers. Uh, so I'm an Agent Orange survivor because about 12 years ago, I had a heart attack. Uh, I have diabetes, uh, type 2, and my kidneys failed. And so I had to go on dialysis. And I was on dialysis for about three months, but then I got a donor, and the donor was our daughter. But our daughter is not our biological daughter. We adopted her 30 years earlier, and yet she was a match. 
So when people ask me, how can I be so positive? Because my daily standard mantra is every day is a great day. I have my faith, my family live in the finest country in the world. And I say it every day, every chance I get. I say it at the Jewel when I go shopping <laughs> for our groceries. All the cashiers want me to come to their station because <laughs> they know what I'm going to say. Uh, and I get so much joy out of saying it because I see it gives other people joy. And so uh, the fact that uh, I'm here today, uh, you know, that's a God thing on this, this kidney match yep. with my daughter. So my daughter jokes about it. She says, Dad, now you got to take care of yourself because you got my kidney. You're right, right, right. The last, comp we have, again, a lot of things in common, I think, but one of the last ones was um, Oprah Winfrey. And uh, I was a producer at Harpo Radio for five years at Dr. Oz and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going through the book and reading things and interviews. I'm like, wait a minute, what? So please share with the audience your Oprah experience. Sure. Uh, there, was a, there was a very famous uh, newspaper columnist. His name was Irv Cupsonet in the Chicago Sometimes. And Irv knew me over the years. Uh, he was a, a veteran himself. Uh, in fact, I, th I think he was, yeah, he announced some of the Bears games. Yeah, did he do cruises for yes. veterans? He yeah. had what well, was called a Purple Heart Cruise in Chicago. The Sun-Times every year would sponsor the Purple Heart Cruise on Lake Michigan. They take one of these, the Spirit of Chicago cruise ships. Right. And it was only for wounded veterans from the VA hospitals. And Cup would invite them. You know, this is free to sure, them. Sure, sure. And the thing that was so cool about it is, you know, he had uh, dancing on it. He had dinner. You know, mm -hmm. it was a, a, and he had Playboy bunnies. Oh, <laughs> well, sure, in Chicago, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and yeah. So it was, and so uh, I got to know him. I I yeah. spoke a couple times on cruises, and and he, uh, so and, and of course he was really close to Oprah. Right. Very close. And so uh, one day my mother was listening to Oprah. You know, because that's, you know, the women are at home listening right. to the TV, and and Oprah says, "Well, we're going to have a program about." Japan bashing uh, because this is in the 80s, uh, late 80s, and Japan economically was a, becoming a world superpower, and our economy was kind of going in the tank. And so everybody was blaming the Japanese because of their cars, their computers, their TVs, you know. Uh, and so Oprah said, well, I'm going to have a program about this. If you know any Japanese-Americans around that might be a good person to be on the show, let me know. Well, my mother calls me. I'm working at this time. <laughs> and she calls me, and she said, you know, uh, you should try to get on this show. So, you know, there was an 800 number. I right. forgot whatever. And I tried calling. Couldn't get through. You know, it's jammed. So I call Cup, Irv Cup's in it. I say, hey, Cup, you know, Oprah's going to have this program. I can't get through. Do you think you think I might be of interest? He said, General, you'd be a natural. You right, know. right. So he said, let me see what I could do. Hour later, I get a call from the executive producer. <laughs> 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 and, and so anyway, I get I get put on the show. Now, this 
created, however, a problem with the Army because uh, I was still an active right. major general in right. the Army Army Reserves. So, and so I called my. I had a civilian job too, right? So I called my I was, my my superior in New York. I was with the stock brokerage company. I said, I need a vacation day tomorrow because I'm going to be on the Oprah show. Sure, go ahead. You know, <laughs> And then I called the Pentagon. <laughs> and I said, uh, I need to let you know I'm going to be on the Oprah show tomorrow. You know, and I, So I got a call back from the chief of public affairs, <laughs> who is a one-star judge. I was going to say, yeah, he's, yeah. By the way, but I was a two-star. Yeah. Right? So he's calling me. So he, he can said, say anything he wants, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah, so he, he basically said, uh, what's the show about? And I said, well, it's about racism and japan bashing and he said well it's not about the military i said no and he said well in that case we don't want you to wear your uniform and i said what i said who is we no i didn't say that but i said i said listen if this is an order by the way the show was the next day oh boy okay so uh i said you know if this is an order from the chief of staff of the army i'm a good soldier salute the flagpole i won't wear my uniform but if this is your recommendation as a staff officer thank you for calling me i've taken it under consideration but i'm going to wear my uniform yes sir and i explained to him i said listen i'm the highest ranking asian american in our at that time Mm -hmm. in our entire armed forces Right, right you know and i said this is an opportunity to excel not to fail there are people in our country who don't know that we have generals and admirals that are Asian. Right. You know, and I said, I, I'm not going to miss that opportunity. Well, he said, let me see what I can do. And, and he, he couldn't find anybody who would put their name <laughs> on the blame line, so to speak. Not on the Oprah show. <laughs> yeah. So, so he wrote a memorandum for record, okay, uh, that went into my file. You know, I called General Mukiyama, you know, Told him it wasn't a good idea, uh, but he basically said he was going to wear his uniform. And then I go on the show, okay, and, you know, they come back from the first commercial break, and we're all sitting there, and she says, and today we have with us Major General Jim Mukoyama, the highest-ranking Asian-American in our armed forces today, camera, and I'm going to be there in a civilian suit. right. I mean, what kind of a message would that have been? So I was in my uniform, yeah. And but the first words out of my mouth were, Oprah, I want to make it very clear. Whatever you hear today on the show from me is the personal opinion of Jim Mukoyama. Mm-hmm. I'm not representing the Department of Defense. I'm not representing the Department of the Army. And then we took off. And I, I did a pretty good job. In fact, uh, there was a letter from a... Cook County judge hmm. who I don't know how he saw the show, but anyway, he saw the <laughs> show and he he basically wrote the Secretary of Defense, who was Rumsfeld at that uh, time. Yeah. And you know, Chicago guy, right? And, yeah, yeah. And he's he said, You know, I just saw the show with General Mukuyama on it. He really did a great job. You guys should be proud of him, right? So <laughs> That letter goes into my file, and it kind of canceled right out next the to, other, yeah, right yeah. to the other guy. Yeah. So before we close, General, is there anything that you've wanted to say or or, or touch on that we haven't yet? Because the microphone is yours, sir. 
there there is one incident that I think it's important uh, for young people to hear and and for adults now in position of responsibility and that was the end of my career my career ended um, uh, somewhat in the sh un under a cloud because I testified before Congress about something that the Army was doing that was not in the best interest of either our soldiers or our nation and in fact uh, reduce the readiness of our armed forces. It was in my position as the president and founder of a 501c19 uh, nonprofit to called the Army Reserve Association to educate the public about our reserve soldiers and Congress this is right when after the Berlin Wall had fallen and basically everyone was looking for this peace dividend to reduce uh, the military budget and transfer funds to social services which made sense actually and the army had a process to do that but instead of following that process the leadership of the army met in a hotel room in Washington DC and cut a smoke-filled room deal which basically emaciated the Army Reserve combat uh, some of the combat units especially aviation and special forces to the expense of the Army Reserve transferred it to some of it to the National Guard uh, the National Guard is an extremely patriotic organization. It's very important for our country, especially for the governors in times of, of uh, disasters. Uh, but at that time, uh, it was, the quality was not the same as the actives nor the reserves in when it came to the combat units and uh, I objected to it with my association. I, I had now keep in mind this is before the internet, computers, texts, cell phones. Uh, people were flooding my with phone calls and <laughs> with uh, faxes, mm -hmm. <laughs> pleading with me to testify before Congress. I got an invitation to testify before Congress, not a subpoena. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to go, but it's something that ethically and principally I had to do because I was the only guy who was willing to do it. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. And so a year later, I was history. My career is ended. But I would do it in a heartbeat again, and I've had so many soldiers come up to me even years later thanking me for standing up and uh, and I would just say to younger leaders today or frankly people who are in leadership today you know speak the truth if you speak the truth you will always feel good you'll be and 
you know, people can criticize you and cancel you or whatever, but um, do the right thing for your people, for my soldiers, for my country. And But I've never regretted it because God at that time said, okay, Jim, it's time for you to do something else. And that's when I got involved with Military Outreach USA, with all the other things that I've been able to help our communities with. The book is fantastic. It's called Faith, Family, and Flag, Memoirs of an Unlikely American Samurai Crusader. And I, I started thinking about what your ahas must be at your age now, going back to that kid in Logan Square and you know wearing a uniform at Shures and then going from Shures to you know the jump school. And then from jump school, you're in Korea and then Vietnam and all the stuff you've done. If you had a chance to talk to that kid that you used to be now, before all this happened, what would you tell him? I, I would tell him, you're going to have peaks and valleys. And, but God is always with you. Never forget that. Stay true to your beliefs. Do what is right, even when it's not popular. There's no guarantees that you're going to make a lot of money or become famous. That's not important in life. What is important in life is you can get up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror, and not flinch. Mm 